0: Oh, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm joined today by my co host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. So, this week on the show, we're speaking with author Ruth Ozeki about her latest novel, The Book of Form and Emptiness.
1: So, there's a character in this book that is Marie Kondo like. And mm-hmm. I was curious, Eric, did you ever Marie Kondo yourself?
0: Oh, you know what? I actually live with an acolyte of Marie Kondo's, um, Mm. which is my husband, Dan. um, Not formally trained, but very much in the same. We live in an absolutely minimalist house. Like any time that we can get rid of clutter, we get rid of it. And um, especially when we were moving back and forth between apartments in Santa Monica and San Francisco, Dan was a master at getting rid of everything that we didn't like. So the good news is our house is always really clean and tidy. The bad news is I have lost so many melon ballers over the years. What are melon ballers? Oh, uh, they're actually an almost useless thing until you need it. But they they are literally a scoop that helps you to make melon balls.
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. I can see how one might decide at a certain point that that is not bringing joy into your life and is instead cluttering your kitchen.
0: Exactly. And that one doesn't need four of them.
1: That seems right. Well, should we get to this conversation with Ruth?
0: <laughs> yes, let's do it. We promise okay. no melon ballers will be involved or harmed.
1: No, that's true. We It doesn't come up.
0: We're excited to have Ruth Ozeki with us on the line today. Ruth is a writer, filmmaker, Zen Buddhist priest, and author of three novels, My Year of Meats, All Over Creation, and A Tale for the Time Being, which was a finalist for the 2013 Booker Prize. Her nonfiction work includes a memoir, The Face, A Time Code, and the documentary film, Halving the Bones. She joins us today to talk about her latest novel, The Book of Form and Emptiness. The novel opens with the death of Kenji, an itinerant jazz musician who is run over by a chicken truck after he falls down in the street late at night and is simply too intoxicated to pick himself back up. The story follows Kenji's wife, Annabelle, and son Benny as they both cope in their own ways with their terrible loss. Annabelle becomes a hoarder, stacking various objects in their home as a kind of insurance against the pain of loss, while Benny starts to hear those objects and many others talking to him, eventually landing him in a psych ward. As the novel moves forward, Benny meets an alluring, rebellious girl named the Aleph, and Sladjov the Bottle Man, a wheelchair-bound drunk whose ravings about poetry, capitalism, and philosophy gin up, in part, the novel's deep investment in questions about consumption, objects, and grief. Thanks so much for joining
2: us, Ruth. Oh, thank you so much, Eric. Ruth, there's so much to talk about with this book,
1: but I wanted to start with just the bare bones of the story, which are these characters, the human characters. (laughs) There's others in here, but how did you arrive at this family?
2: Wow, you know... I don't even know whether I can answer that question because I don't really know. The idea of a boy who hears objects speaking to him just kind of came to me one day when I was sitting at a, in a writing room you know, on 14th Street in New York, kind of test driving a desk to see if it was a place where I thought I could write. And I thought, well, I, I should really try to write something. And So I opened up my computer, which I had, and wrote the scene of this boy kind of having his first sexual dream about a girl and waking up and walking into the hallway and hearing the objects in the house sort of moaning and speaking to him. I honestly don't know where the boy came from. I knew that he was called Benny. I kind of had a sense of what their house looked like, or at least once he left his bedroom and walked into the hallway, I had a sense of what the house looked like. But I don't really, wasn't like I'd been thinking about this beforehand. It just kind of happened as I was sitting at that desk. So
1: interesting to hear you say that this was inspired by you sitting at a desk. Yes, I know, right?
2: (laughs) Because that sounds like an object speaking to you in a way, right? Exactly. But, you know, it wasn't like the desk was speaking to me, but something about sitting at the desk in this location, it's called Paragraph Mm -hmm. in New York on 14th Street. It's just, you know, it's a writing room. It's really nice. And I joined it and continued to work on the story there for a while while I was in New York. But yeah, I mean, I think it's true. There was something about that desk, something about that room that just yielded this character. Mm -hmm. You know, it's sort of like the Pirandello, you know, how many characters, six characters in search of an author Mm -hmm. I sort of feel that way sometimes that the characters are kind of out there and they're just waiting for somebody to sit down at a desk somewhere and be receptive. And then, you know, they'll kind of zoom down and take up residence in, your, in a fold of your brain somewhere.
0: If your characters kind of are alive for you in that way, I'm also fascinated by the way in which in the book itself, you allow the book to be alive. So just to this up for our listeners, there is a self-reflexive book that, as it is being written, is being interrogated. Benny, as a character, expresses his desire for the book to tell him about his parents, And then gets into a kind of interesting argument with the book as an object (laughs) and a narrative device for what it reveals and what it conceals. You know, we've seen that a lot in kind of modern and contemporary fiction. But then what I love is the twist is there's a moment when the book kind of throws it back to Benny in these early moments and says... Well, don't you know what we desire? Like, what we desire is books. We capture all these things for you, and yet we never get to experience your life. You know, we're just text and image. So can you talk a little bit about what went into that part of the novel for you and how you think about books (laughs) as objects and stories?
2: Yeah, well, you know, again, it wasn't something that I'd planned. I wish I could say that I'd planned these things because it would make me sound a lot smarter, but I kind of don't plan things. And in fact, this I didn't plan either. I was happily writing along in the third person. And actually, I do recall that I've always thought that real novelists should be able to write in a third person omniscient voice. And I thought, if I really want to master this form, I need to learn how to do this because this is just obvious, right? That this is the voice of the novel, right? And so in this case too, I've tried several times. I've just never been able to do it. And so when I started writing this book, that was the voice I set out to use. And I was writing very happily in this third person omniscient voice. It was kind of almost a super omniscient voice. And then suddenly Benny pops in and interrupts in the first person, speaking in the first person. And so this becomes problematic then because now I have a character who is, you know, sort of breaking the omniscience, breaking the third person omniscience. And so then before I realized what was happening, the book started talking back to Benny directly. In other words, addressing Benny. And this kind of conversation, a dialogue started up between the book and the boy. And so then it suddenly, it became clear to me that the book was no longer an omniscient voice, that the book was actually a character in the book. So it's almost like kind of nesting dolls here, or this kind of infinitely recursive, self-reflective idea. And so in any case, Benny and the book started to talk to each other. And that became the structure for the novel, this dialogue between Benny and his book. And of course, it does beg the question sort of which came first, the book or the boy, you know, it's a chicken and the egg relationship, because we don't really know whether the book is making Benny up or is Benny making the book up? Or in fact, do they exist independently of each other? And but they They can't really exist independently of each other. So in any
0: case... Well, in an imaginative (laughs) way, they can. When you are writing this (laughs) book or just in general, do you ever feel that push and pull between the kind of characters that you are realizing on the fly, right? Whose desires you're inventing, you're in control of all of it, (laughs) as being at conflict (laughs) with the narrative that you're trying to tell?
2: Yes. I mean, I never really feel like I'm in control of my characters, though. That's why I laugh. And I have to say that I do my best to relinquish control, to let go of the control. I generally find that when I start trying to control things too much in a conscious way, in a kind of narratively conscious way, too early on in the process anyway, then that's when the book goes off the rails. And so what I try very hard to do is to step back and step away from that conscious controlling and allow the characters to just act, to behave, to want, to move, to talk on their own. Now, I do understand that I am the writer of the book, but I, you know, I feel like that that the voices and the characters and the story, well, you know, I mean, John Gardner talks about it as a dream, right? You know, talks about novels as a fictional dream. I do think that's what happens. It's like, in the same way that I can't control my dreams at night, I can't really control, or I can control, but I try not to control too much what's happening? in the book as it emerges in the first draft. And then having said that, of course, then once the first draft is there, then I have something to work with. And then I start to shape it in more, you know, sort of technical ways. But that first draft, I try very hard to just kind of keep my hands off of it, you know, and keep my mind off of it. And in fact, I go so far as to create kind of almost games to introduce random elements in that, that I can't control that introduce a kind of randomness or serendipity into the process of writing.
1: Can you give us an example of one of the games?
2: Sure. I mean, in this case, you know, I was kind of playing around with fluxus and, you know, Hmm. surrealist art. And so I just kind of made a little fluxus rule for myself, which was that when an object entered my life and the object had a kind of charge to it, it had a kind of energy to it, you know, and to use Marie Kondo's language, if it sparked joy, you know, then I would take that object and kind of put it into the book and see what happened. And so my editor at the time, Carol DeSanti, had gone on a vacation and she brought back a snow globe. And it's a snow globe with a little sea turtle in it. And I, I thought, you know, this is perfect. I'll give this to Annabelle because Annabelle is a collector. And so I did. And then the next thing I knew, Annabelle was collecting, you know, she was on eBay collecting snow globes, which meant that actually I was on eBay looking at snow globes. (laughs) Um, which I spent quite a bit of time doing, but in any case, so that's what happened. And then later when Benny, you know, meets the Aleph and goes to her studio in this abandoned factory, you know, I knew that she was making something. And the next thing I realized, she was making these catastrophic snow globes with scenes from, of 9-11 and Hurricane Katrina and, you know, various other natural disasters and man-made disasters inside the snow globes. And two, then the image of a snow globe, that image kind of became a metaphor for Benny and his relationship with his mother in that Benny is kind of enclosed in this cacophonous world where sound is kind of swirling around his head and his mother is on the outside of this orb kind of looking in. And so then that became a kind of metaphor as well for the relationship of the two. So various things like that. I mean, I went to a Chinese restaurant and got a fortune cookie that says the world is a beautiful book for those who read it. And that seemed cool, right? So I sort of went with this idea of small pieces of paper and fortunes and use that as part of the Aleph's sort of interventions. She does a similar kind of thing. And then the final thing was somebody told me to reread Walter Benjamin's essay, Unpacking My Library. So I did. And then Walter Benjamin kind of streamed into the book. And as I was reading his correspondence with Adorno, Adorno mentions Benjamin's collection of snow globes. So this whole thing kind of came full circle. And that's the kind of serendipity that, I mean, I couldn't plan that. There's no way that I could plan that. So the question is how to, you know, sort of relinquish control enough to invite these kinds of coincidences in. That's
1: so beautiful. I wonder, well, this brings up, I think, a a big question in this book, but I'm curious about your personal relationship to objects.
2: In your own life,
1: how do you relate to them?
2: I wish I could say that, you know, that I was a Zen minimalist. You know, <laughs> people always That assume, makes all of us. I, I know, right? I mean, people always assume that I am. I have a kind of fraught relationship with objects. I find objects to be very demanding. I'm actually quite careful. I'm a lot more careful these days about what I buy because I find that objects kind of lying around the house, they demand a certain kind of attention. And so clutter really, it bothers me, but I do seem to, you know, see it around more than I like. There are a lot of books around here that you know, I wish I should probably, you know, sort of move along to the next readers. So I find objects to be very they're full of stories and they're very demanding and they are kind of noisy. And I think, you know, I started to feel this way about objects because my parents were both born, they were both born in 1914. So they grew up during the Depression. And so they saved things. You know, they didn't throw things away. They were very thrifty. You know, every piece of tin foil had to be washed and dried and folded up for reuse. They just, they saved things. They weren't hoarders, but they anything that could be used, they would keep. And so when they both died and I was left with the task of cleaning out their house, that was a really sort of traumatic task. It was, you know, kind of Aegean stables kind of task. And then two, you know, every object had meaning. Every object had stories attached to it. And some of the stories I knew, but a lot of the stories I didn't. So it was hard. Anyway, that's I think probably it was experiences like that that led to this story about a boy who has this kind of fraught relationship with objects.
0: I'm interested because since you are a Zen priest, you know, and I have, I guess I would say a very passing lay understanding (laughs) of (laughs) like Buddhist principles, but obviously the book's title comes from this like very famous, I guess, not quite a koan, but like a,
2: Well, it's a truism, but it's a line from the Heart Sutra, which is one of the seminal sutras for Mahayana Buddhism. Form is emptiness, emptiness is form. form.
0: yeah. And this also is the, I forget what the name for the drawing of the circle that is also supposed Mm. to represent this, that it's like what you see is a form, but it also is no form. I'm fascinated by the object. There's a certain approach to Vipassana practice where it's about not getting caught up in the stories, that in fact, it's the stories that cling us to dukkha, to suffering. Mm -hmm. So if we don't get caught by the stories, if we don't get caught by objects or attachments, Mm -hmm. then we will be free. We reach some kind of enlightenment, or at the very least, like, a better way of relating between, like, ourselves and the outside world. Mm -hmm. But on the one hand, like, you know, Ruth, we're all writers. Like, we're definitely attached (laughs) to objects. And it seems to me very interesting in the book, you have two different ways of being attached to objects. One is Annabelle's attachment, which is attachment against loss. Mm -hmm. For Benny, it seems that objects call out to him because, in a sense, objects are always calling out to us, right? Especially, and this is a bigger point in the book, in a world organized by capitalism objects are constantly hailing us for attention, both as saleable goods and as memories or other sorts of commodifiable things. So can you talk a little bit about the kind of Zen perspective on the pull that objects have for us?
2: Sure. You know, so many things come to mind as you're talking. It's a fascinating sort of area to explore. The first thing I would say is that dukkha, suffering, is fantastic for novelists, right? I mean, what would we do if, you know, what would we do if we didn't have dukkha, right? None of us would have anything to write about. So it seems extremely important as a novelist anyway, that I examine dukkha. As a Buddhist, dukkha is, it's the first noble truth, right? So it's what starts you on your path to Zen practice. And certainly, you know, Buddhism talks a lot about attachment, desire mm-hmm. and attachment, and attachment is the cause of dukkha. So our attachment to objects, our attachment to people, our attachment to our stories, that being a really primary one, right. you know, these are the causes of dukkha, which, I mean, I I think when, you know, you look at all of world literature through a Buddhist lens, you realize that everyone's a Buddhist, you know, all writers, all <laughs> stories are, you know. It falls very neatly within kind of Buddhist philosophical paradigms. But in any case, with objects, with things, I was playing with a Zen koan. And very often, well, not very often, but with this book and with A Tale for the Time Being, at the center of the story is a question or a little piece of philosophy, Zen philosophy, that the story is in a way, not a commentary on, but that the story explores. And so the koan at the heart of this book is a koan that goes, do insentient beings speak the Dharma? Okay, do insentient Mm. beings speak the Dharma? In other words, can insentient beings teach us? Right. Right. Can they be our teachers? Can they express the Buddhist teachings? And, you know, my feeling is that, yes, of course they can. Insentient sentient beings, being a kind of broad category, it can be inanimate objects, but in sentient beings could also be, I suppose, trees and grasses and weeds and living things as well. But I would say that, yes, all of these things can, that they do speak and that they can teach us. And our relationship with these objects and our attachment to these objects, to these things, really does form a kind of practice in itself. And certainly in Zen, we spend a lot of time taking care of physical objects. Zen is filled with kind of rituals around cleaning and taking care of objects. And I think a lot of this just comes from sort of Japanese culture, too. Mm. I think it actually has its roots in Shintoism and Shinto animism, because Shinto, the indigenous religion of Japan, is a very animistic tradition. And then that ties back to Marie Kondo and her idea about objects sparking joy. You know, it's exactly that kind of relationship. When you have an object, you if you have an object that served you like a pair of socks that have worn themselves out taking care of your feet. You don't just throw them out. You pick them up and you hold them for a minute and you experience that little moment of gratitude and then you throw them out right? It's a kind of encouraging, an acknowledgement of the vitality and the vibrancy and the agency of the object that's kind of built into the relationship. I mean, I think Jane Bennett talks about this, you know, this kind of thing. I mean, it's different, but in her book, Vibrant Matter, beautiful book. And to some extent, I mean, Timothy Morton, I think also talks about this kind of thing in this idea of object-oriented ontology, so, I mean, right. I think this is a philosophical strain that's moved from Japan and is finding expression in the West as well.
0: You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Ruth Ozeki, author of The Book of Form and Emptiness. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation.
1: We have Tom McCarthy on the line with us today. His latest novel is called The Making of Incarnation, and Tom is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Tom, what book are you going to recommend?
3: Well, I'm going to recommend a novel by Anne Quinn called Three. Anne Quinn, you know it, I take it.
1: (laughs) I do, I do, I do. But tell me more
3: about it. Well, she was this post-war British novelist who died very young, aged about, 37, I think, she was one of the few Anglophone writers in, in John Calder's stable alongside Beckett. But whereas Beckett won Nobel Prizes and was much fetid, she died in poverty and obscurity and then remained obscure for many decades afterwards. It's only quite recently that writers of, of our generation, I guess, have been kind of rediscovering her, and in fact, there's a new edition from a small, well, from an independent British press called Another Stories of This Novel Three, with a very good introduction by Joshua Cohen. And I've spent time with this book because I have written the introduction. For some reason, a Norwegian house asked me to do the introduction to, to their edition, but I just think it's an amazing book. It's, as its title suggests, it involves these three characters who are very partially filled out. One is called L or Leon, one's called R or Ruth, and the other's just called S. She never really gets a name. And they kind of exist in this rundown house, in a rundown coastal town, in this kind of love triangle. Mm -hmm. It's not even a love triangle, it's a kind of psycho-sexual, I don't know what triangle, And nothing really happens. I mean, right from the beginning of the book, we know that S is already dead. And her last months are kind of pieced together from diaries and transcripts. But in fact, the one thing they do do is kind of reenact their own conditions. So Leon L has inherited, along with the house, all these statues from his father, and there's an empty... Voided swimming pool in the grounds, and they move the statues around and put on masks and kind of do these strange ritualised reenactments of or, or enactments of scripts that they've written. It's a kind of parable for for culture, I guess post-war culture and the the ruined legacy of classicism and the empty swimming pool, which is a kind of arid space, but also maybe a kind of some inverted theatre but the local people hate it and they just throw earth at them and <laughs> vandalize the property. And yeah, S just kind of disappears. I mean, the whole book, she's she's the kind of vanishing point within all the triangles between the three characters. She's, she's the, the exact opposite of a kind of fully rounded character. She's just this kind of Eurydice figure who's just always disappearing. In fact, in one of the films that's replayed of her, we see her kind of like Aphrodite in the foam, but she instead of emerging from the sea, she's disappearing into the sea. Her face is turned away and then the film just, you know, with old film, it just goes into flecks and whiteness on the wall. So the whole thing is about kind of navigating her own disappearance and about kind of, everything is about rubbing out and erasure. The, The sea is just, the tide marks are rubbing themselves out and her own diary is just full of blanks and white spaces increasingly like I don't know. And then, and, and of course, Anne Quinn herself dies by drowning not long after the, the book is published, which is kind of impossible to, you know, keep out of the equation. I just think it's a, a, a really remarkable book. And, and the paradox with it, I guess, you know, she was so neglected during and after her lifetime. And the temptation for me now is to kind of say, you know, no, she was a giant, to kind of move her statue, to repair her statue and put it right centre stage and, you know, reclaim her as a literary giant. But, but in a way, her own work totally disavows this type of gesture. It's, it's all about marginality and and erasure. In one of her short stories called The Undiscovered Country, she has a character, Sandra, who talks about the, the Navajo people's tradition of drawing making a, a, a painting or a, a sketching, an etching in the sand of the desert every morning and letting it be rubbed out by sundown. And she says this is what she aspires to, to being rubbed out. So I, I, I think there's a whole amazing kind of aesthetic in there. And it's a huge challenge to the reader. Like, how do you react to work that wants to disappear? I mean, what what is the? How How does one... How does one read that? Does one kind of assist in its erasure or, or try and kind of reinscribe it? But then doesn't that go against the logic of the work or or do you replay like the film on the wall, the end of the film, just replay on and on this this moment of becoming illegible? It raises more questions than it answers, but it's it's a, it's a remarkable work.
1: Thank you for that for that recommendation. The recommendation in of itself does not allow Anna Quinn to, <laughs> to, um, to fully erase herself, but I'm glad it doesn't. Thank you, Tom McCarthy. Thank you. We've been speaking with Tom McCarthy. His latest novel is called The Making of Incarnation.
0: You're listening to the Larb Radio Hour. Now back to our conversation with Ruth Ozeki, author of The Book of Form and Emptiness. Well and it's also there in the some of the other registers that you're signaling in the book, which is kind of a more Marxist critical philosophy. Marx also uses objects as kind of metaphors in a, in a lot of what he is revealing is that the object is not exactly what we see when we look at the object, right? It has this whole kind of, this also Borgesian in a way too, that the object has this whole production history. It's involved in the touching of many hands, different materials, different places. The bottle man, I think, is also supposed to be Slavoj Žižek, who thinks a (laughs) lot about the pull that objects and their production histories have on us and the desires that they produce in us. So, can you, you know, you've talked a little bit about uh, Marie Kondo in the book. Can you talk a little bit about Slavoj Zizek and his thought?
2: <laughs> um, yeah, you totally nailed that one. Um, yeah, uh, the bottle man is is definitely a kind of homage to, to to Zizek. And and there's this wonderful YouTube video that Zizek does. He's wandering around. I think the fresh. I think it's the Fresh Kills dump. He's talking about love your, love your garbage, love your garbage. And, and it's a wonderful scene. I mean, there's a, you know, it's a long, it's a long passage there. Um, and it's just one that I, I particularly love. You know, I was thinking about that as I was, as I was writing this, but I was also thinking about he goes off into, you know, many directions with this, you know, and he's always interesting and, you know, and very flamboyant. But I was thinking about the production of objects, you know, I was thinking about supply chains, you know, and so when at the beginning of the book, Benny is talking about his sneaker and how like a running shoe has a kind of almost a felt sense that incorporates sort of the, the various parts of a sneaker. So for example, uh, you know, he talks about if the factory worker in, you know, Guangdong is having a bad day, then, you know, then the the despair or the sadness will cling to the whole of the grommet that's being produced, right? And so this idea that, you know, just to kind of conjure up the complexity of made objects in our world and to think about, you know, to evoke all of the different people who have been in some way involved in the manufacture and production of, you know, something as quotidian and, you know, something that we take for granted like a running shoe. You know, if you could imagine the the kind of ghosts of, you know, all of the people who harvested the cotton and, you know, and the rubber and, you know, uh, manufactured the, you know, the shoe and were involved in the production and the distribution and the design. And, you know, if all of those kind of auras cling to the shoe, then the shoe suddenly becomes a very complicated and busy and noisy sight. You know, then if you sort of expand that to all of the stuff that's, you know, surrounding you in the world, right, suddenly this room, which is actually quite quiet right now, becomes a cacophonous place. And so this is something that I think probably when I was doing a lot of talks about my second novel, All Over Creation, which was about you know, potatoes and about the food supply chains. I was evoking this for students and trying to kind of help them understand the complexity of these things, you know, something as, you know, as simple as a potato. You know, if, if again, you know, if all of the the people and, and you know, factors that went into producing this potato were actually, you know, sort of s- surrounded that potato like ghosts, suddenly that potato, you know, becomes a very, you know, a very noisy and cacophonous and, and complex site. Um, so anyway, that was, I think that that idea probably came from, you know, in a way, the previous book, you know, and the, the previous, I mean, the, the first two books that I wrote, My Year of Meats as well. Again, you know, it was about food, but, you know, I was very much kind of thinking about supply chain issues.
1: I think um, Bruce Robbins calls that the sweatshop sublime. It seems to me like the flip side of experiencing that we talked about, you know, dharma, but the flip side is insanity, right? <laughs> that, that, there's, that, there's a, that there's a way in which this kind of noise, the sublimity of so much story, so much object, so many ghosts, so many people, such a thorough understanding of what supply chain might mean can cause craziness, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and that and that is partly what happens with Benny. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you can talk about that, like the the risk that there's something sublime in it, right? Mm-hmm. That in in seeing something like that, or an understanding or hearing it. But there's also something within that sublimity that's really scary.
2: And I I think that's why um, you know Benny, who's a very sensitive, you know, he, he's been you know the death of his father and the grief that ensued increased his sensitivity and and made him very receptive to this kind of overwhelm. And, um, you know, so I said that I didn't know much about my characters or my book when I start out. What I did know was that at some point, you know, midway through the book, that Benny was going to leave the made world and go to a mountain and climb a mountain and be in a place of you know, where he's not surrounded by made objects. Right. And he's going to experience the world in a slightly different way, you know, from the top of that mountain. Now, I didn't know how he was going to get to the mountain or what was, you know, but I I did know that that, that he was going to, you know, that that was going to happen. Um, And I think that that's, you know, that's certainly one place where he finds some respite where he finds some refuge. And of course, the other place where he finds refuge and respite is at the library, where he finds a community of people who can support him in his, you know, uh, as he's trying to process this experience of of hearing voices, um, you know, people who are not going to judge him and, you know, think of him as, you know, a diagnostic category, but who are going to, you know, uh, he, he that's where he meets the bottle man. That's where he meets Slavoj and who's a poet after all. And, you know, so Slavoj teaches him to um, listen, to the voices in a certain kind of way and encourages him to write as well, right? So that's when Benny writes his first story. You know, the public library, has always been that kind of place for me, you know, it's a place where, you know, yes, it's filled with objects that speak to us, you know, because that's what books do. That's their job is to speak to us. But, you know, the the books that's, you know, the objects in a library are, you know, sort of ordered and, you know, they, they kind of speak quietly. They know their place, you know, it's an area where stories are kind of contained. Um, and so it's a refuge for him as well.
1: Something that struck me in with the Aleph and with Slavoj is that there's a um, and with Benny Benny's father as well is that there is a sort of international community that he finds that is somewhat in opposition to the sort of the Americanness mm-hmm. that he's steeped in, and I wonder if there's some if there was if you were looking. F- or that somehow, if you were looking for a sense of finding answers within a more global sort of understanding of what, how we relate to objects, how we relate to books, how we relate to these things. And if other kinds of
2: cultures can provide more purchase than mm-hmm. perhaps America can. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I wasn't intentionally doing that except for perhaps the Japan stuff. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I went, when Marie Kondo started her, you know, her, her kind of global domination, you know, efforts, you know, um, I, I was really thrilled actually, you know, I, I'm not a, a you know, I, I think what she's doing is really interesting, um, and one of the reasons I think it's interesting is, is you know, because of where these traditions are coming from. You know, the the animism of Shinto, for example, um, and the fact that in Japan, this is a long. You know, there's a long tradition of exactly this you know I mean I always like this story about the the needles and pins you know if you imagine you know in in olden times uh you know a needle was handmade right and so it's not you know it's a very precious object I mean it takes a lot of skill to to make a needle and so you wouldn't you know you, you would take care of your needle because you needed it right so you would take care of it and but eventually it would break right and so when it broke you you wouldn't just throw it away because that would be disrespectful. Um, you would h- hold on to it. And, and once a year at the, I think once a year, at the local shrine, they would ha- there would be a day when you could bring your ne- broken needles and pins to the shrine and on the altar, they would have a block of tofu, right? <laughs> a big block of tofu. And you would put your broken needles and pins into the block of tofu so they would have a soft resting place. And then, that you know, after that, they would do a kind of memorial service so that you would have a, you know, you would have an opportunity to, you know, sort of feel that gratitude, you know, sort of take that pause and feel that gratitude um, for, you know, for this, this object that has, you know, broken itself while serving you. And so it's a very, I think that's something very beautiful about that. Um, it's also interesting, though, because part of that is the understanding that needles and pins are sharp and, and they can hurt you. So you don't want to piss them off, right? You want to, you want to treat them, you know, respectfully so that, you know, they don't, they don't come back at you, right? There's a tension involved in that, which I think is really kind of interesting as well. Um, so this was something that, um, you know, that, that I, that this relationship with, with objects was something that I wanted to sort of explore um, in more detail, you know, I, sh- I should say the Japanese relationship with objects. It was something I wanted to explore in more detail. And so thus the character of Aikon, who is a, you know, who's a kind of Marie Kondo-like character. She's a She's a Zen Buddhist nun, but she has, you know, she, you know, has a, a very sort of specific Philosophy around taking care of objects, and and so I I did you know certainly want to kind of explore that um, the the Japanese side of this the the European side uh, you know I'm not exactly you know certainly. Slavoj you know Žižek was you know when he kind of came swooping into the the novel and and transformed into the um to the bottle man you know that had its own kind of influences but so did of course Walter Benjamin and you know and I was thinking about well I guess with with Walter Benjamin in particular you know he 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 was the author of the arcades right and and he was a flâneur who you know, who loved objects and he had so many, you know, collections of objects himself. And he spent so much time wandering around the streets. I mean, if, you know, if he had been alive during, you know, and eBay had been, you know, existed while, while he was alive, I mean, he probably wouldn't have written any books, you know, because he would have been so busy on, you know, on eBay, much like Annabelle and others. So, you know, I, I think, I, You know, Walter Benjamin certainly, you know, he he thought very deeply about our relationship with objects and about what objects, the kinds of stories that objects contain. But that was, again, a kind of serendipity. You know, it wasn't like I thought of that ahead of time and thought, oh, I really need to bring Walter Benjamin into the story. No, it was somebody, you know, somebody happened to recommend, you know, that I reread Unpacking Your Library. And of course, there it was. So
0: Ruth, as we kind of wrap up here, I wanted Mm -hmm. to pick up some threads from the beginning of our conversation to ask you a little bit about two things, both of them related. Uh, The first would be kind of how your Zen practice and kind of the way that it has developed since you became ordained, but uh, kind of how that has changed your approach to the writing of fiction. Mm -hmm. And then in that way, specifically to think about this novel as something that opens up so many proliferating questions about that the objects can tell us throughout the book. How do you know
2: when a book is done? Mm, mm. That's the million-dollar question, isn't it? Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I guess, you know, as I said, I, I did have a sense of the overallness of this book, you know, how it was going to it was actually going to play out on the page but but i certainly did have a sense of you know the book starting with with suffering you know starting with the first noble truth you know starting with the death impermanence right and then i i knew that at some point benny would climb this mountain and and find a certain kind of a different relationship to sound and to you know the world around him to objects around him to the unmade world i knew that it would end with a funeral of some kind, you know, um, because they didn't really have a funeral for Kenji at the beginning of the book. Um, so in that sense, you know, once I reached it, I knew that the book was done. You know, how that relates to to the Zen, um, you know, to Zen practice. I mean, I guess I would say that that since I've gotten serious about Uh, Buddhism and about meditation in particular. I do have a a much less, you know, sort of controlling relationship with story. Um, I'm much more willing to, you know, to kind of take a backward step and, you know, try to get out of the way and trust that the story will emerge and, and even if it goes off the rails, you know, that I will, that, you know, somehow I'll be able to pull it back. I think there's a lot more play in my writing now. Uh, There's a kind of playfulness or, you know, uh, a, I always think of the metaphor of the hand of the mind, right? And very often, you know, most of the time, we walk around with, you know, the hand of our mind clenched in a kind of fist. You know, we're kind of holding on to ideas and we're tense and we're, you know, trying to get things done and and you know, so there's this kind of tension in the hand of the mind. But when, you know, in meditation, what you do is you just relax. You relax the hand of the mind and, you know, allow, I mean, thoughts come, thoughts go, you know, but it's not that same kind of grabby that our minds, you know, have, I, at least my mind has in, in much of my waking life. So there's a, you know, there's a kind of, you know, relaxing into the writing. There's a relaxing into the story um, that I think is uh, developed over the years for me. That's beautiful. So I think we'll actually end with that
0: beautiful image of the opening hand. And thank you so much for joining us. We've been speaking with Ruth Ozeki, author most recently of The Book of Form and Emptiness. Thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Larb Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Bladen.